Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The domestic season may be over, but we still have the closing stages of the Champions League and Europa League to play, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. Seb stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe Devine. And the delightful Rafa Honigstein. Guten Tag. Hi, Rafa. How's it going? I'm very well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. We're pleased to have you here today to discuss all things Bundesliga. And of course, uh, as is uh, part of a trend now throughout the last couple of weeks, this is a sensible transfers podcast. So we're going to try and cover as many Bundesliga teams as we can. But before we get to it, let me remind you that uh, if you're a fan of sensible transfers, you can find an editorial piece for most teams in the Premier League, some of the Championship, some in Scotland too, by uh, visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO transfers, where you'll find 40% off an annual subscription. It's really worth it, and of course, uh, some of the best writing on there is by Rafa himself. Anyway, uh, let's move on now to the main podcast, and I will leave you in the uh, the cool hands and the warm embrace of Rafa Honigstein. Okay. Uh, first team is uh, Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich. Now we don't have any picks for Bayern Munich, uh, but presumably the the Leroy Sané deal will be the most significant of uh, of the summer. So, Rafa, can I start by asking you to provide a sort of sense of the mood at Bayern and what are the post you know COVID finances like for a club of, of that size? Has there been any retraction on their ambition in the in the transfer market or anything that they wanted to do but couldn't? Well, Bayern are the wealthiest club in in Germany, turning over. 750 million euros last year but of course they're also in absolute terms the most affected uh, their stadium is a cash cow uh, with no crowds in there they will have um, to take a huge hit there's also some um, related effects on sponsorship money etc and i think they did have to scale down their their ambitions uh, ever so slightly um Leroy Sané, of course has come but i think that has almost but curtailed their their movements in in the market they're still in for a right back an attacking right back because that's the one area in the squad where they're a little bit light Odrio Zola's loan from Real Madrid I think will not be renewed and they will certainly not buy him and there is talk that Hansi Flick also wants a fourth winger um, for his squad which might lead to Ivan Perisic getting a permanent deal uh, before Covid I think it was very unlikely that Bayern were to to go for him and make his stay permanent but now that um Bayern's finances are a little bit stretched I think he might be seen as a as a sensible and, and safe option I mean the the chat around Bayern at the moment is obviously um related to the Champions League final we know for example that although there'll there'll have been extra fixtures associated that that they weren't played at their stadium and that even if they were they wouldn't have been able to sell tickets for them but presumably they get a little bump going further in the Champions League than they have done last season particularly if they if they can win the game right 
Yes, uh, they will get a little bump. It remains to be seen how much of that money, though, uh, UEFA will also have to pay back to rights holders because the games weren't delivered on time, the games were staged without fans, etc. So the net effect might be not as impressive as far as you know extra income is concerned that otherwise would have been in the normal season when they go to the final or possibly win it. What remains to be seen is, of course, how many players will leave them. Um, Thiago and David Alaba and Jerome Boateng are all in the penultimate year of their contract. It remains to be seen if Bayern can at least persuade David Alaba to stay. I think with the other two, there is um, certainly a realisation with Thiago that he is very likely to go. And with Boateng, I think Bayern are very keen on extending this deal. And that might yet free up some transfer funds to perhaps buy another playmaking midfielder, which again would be missed once Thiago leaves and uh, there's no ready-made replacement for him in the squad. So this, is, this isn't like directly related to transfers, although I guess indirectly it will be in the future. I just wanted to, to gauge from you the significance of Bayern reaching the, the Champions League final. I mean, it's been, what, seven years? Was it 2013 that they won it last? Yeah. Um, it's been something that the, the club has obviously had as one of presumably one of their main goals throughout that time. Pep Guardiola was there and, and didn't manage to, to quite make it either. Uh, how significant is it for Bayern? What does it mean for a regeneration of the team over the next couple of years? And it came at a season, I, I don't know if this is a fair thing to say or not, but it seems to have come at a season where it wasn't quite expected. No, it wasn't expected. They went into the season thinking that um, this is a team still in transition, that they need to strengthen, that they're, they're still quite far away from Europe's elite. That was certainly the impression that they had when they were eliminated by Liverpool last season. But of course, under Hansi Flick, things have turned around by 180 degrees. And now this team is playing not just consistent football in terms of results, but also some really beautiful stuff, the likes of which hasn't really been seen since Guardiola left us, not seen very frequently. Um, I mean, I think reaching the final itself doesn't really do that much for Bayern. Um, it, it's the winning that counts. If they now lose to PSG, they will maybe say, OK, it was a decent season, but they were still very unhappy and it, it feel unfulfilled. The Champions League looms so large for them that it, it really makes all the difference for their season if they win it or not. Would you say they're favourites? I'm not sure they are favourites. I think it's a pretty evenly poised game. Um, Bayern have certain weaknesses, so do PSG. I think Bayern's form and their incredibly consistent um, results since the restart, but even going back a little bit further, would suggest they are the better side. But I think PSG have all the characteristics to to really hurt them uh, with their quality up front. So it'll be a very, very interesting game. I think Bayern might be able to just have a bit more, but I think it won't be easy and it won't be straightforward. So it should, should really make for for great final for the neutrals, if not so much for those who hail from Munich and will be very nervous. Slightly off topic, Rafa. Um, just a question over the long term and uh, Oli Kahn's role at Bayern. Um, he obviously joined the board at the beginning of the year and I think uh, in January 2022 will succeed Karl-Heinz Rummenigge as, as chairman. What do you expect the kind of the long-term implications of that to be? What's, um, what, 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 how is the club likely to change as a result? Well, the idea is that the club changes as little as possible in, in having almost a like-for-like -like replacement. Of course, they're very different personalities, they have different backgrounds, but the idea is, again, that you have a former buying great be the chief executive uh, and be in charge of the club and make the strategic decisions and most importantly appoint those below him uh, when it comes to the management when it comes to the sporting director 
And I don't think necessarily there'll be huge changes. I think it'll be slightly more subtle. Something might change in terms of um, the relationship between Khan and Salihamidzic. Salihamidzic has been doing a better job than, than people have given him credit for in the past, and I would include myself in that. But it remains to be seen if Khan maybe has different ideas in a couple of years' time. So um, things can reflect the uh, amount and size of the egos in this club. It's the strength, but also it's, its weakness to a certain extent. And we, we really don't know enough about Khan's plans going forward to, to make any serious um, predictions of, of where it's going. But the idea behind this is that the club should not change but simply continue on its path with slightly younger and uh, and sort of more dynamic leaders uh, because Rooniger and Hoeneß and these guys are, are coming to the end of their administrative careers. Well, good luck to Bayern from me uh, in the final. I'll be rooting for them. Moving on now to uh, Borussia Dortmund. Um, I would like to give Jaden Sancho a cursory mention. Um, I'd like to hear more uh, from you, Rafa, about, about Jude Bellingham. But before we get there, let's talk about Sancho because there was obviously the, uh, a lot of rumours related to his potential uh, or his proposed transfer to Manchester United. Mikhail Zork now insisting that he isn't for sale after that, that deadline. Do we feel that that is definitely true? He's definitely staying next season or is this part of a negotiating tactic? Or what's, what's your read on it? I don't think it is part of a negotiating tactic. I think it does reflect Dortmund's desire to hold on to him now that the deal was not possible to be done in the time that they wanted. Does that completely close the door on a deal being done right now? I wouldn't quite go that far because I think there is still a realistic possibility that United will say, you know what, here is the 120 million euros, Just can we just get this done with? At which point I think Dortmund will, will at least think again at the moment. But from everything I know, United haven't even come close to, to that point yet. And I don't think there is a, a, a serious, or sort of a, serious is the wrong word, I don't think there is a, um, a hard, set-in-stone agreement between Sancho and United about his personal um, terms as well, either. So it seems to me as if there's, there just remains too much of an obstacle um, in these three different parts of the, of the uh, equation, um, Dortmund's fee, the wages, and the time frame to to say that this is more likely to get done than not. Is there still an outside chance? Yes, but I expect Dortmund to hold the line now, and I think it's more likely that something will happen in January. I mean, presumably, like the later they would get into the summer, anyway, that the less likely Dortmund would want to be to 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 let go of a player who they. I mean, are there natural replacements within the squad already? If they were to to sell hypothetically, would they then be looking to bring somebody else in? I mean, Dortmund have real quality in those attacking uh, positions, of course, um, and there's real depth there. Uh, there's also in uh, Yusuf Mukaku, uh, a 15-year-old that's breaking through the ranks, who's been sort of the one in youth football in recent years and has already made a big impression in training with the team, with the first team. I don't think there's a ready-made replacement because Sancho's been so important and so influential this season, but Dortmund could probably just about get by. Knowing Michael Zorc, they already have one or two new Sancho's in their black book. But I think, again, the idea that the deal should have been done or ideally would have gone through by now, uh, as you say, does reflect also Dortmund's wish to to have the succession plan in place and make sure that they can get actually somebody in if and when they do sell Sancho. And I think doing a deal for, for somebody who come in, who comes in now, 
when you know we're just a couple of weeks away from the beginning of the season it's going to be very difficult which explains why Dortmund really want to hold on to him and I, I cannot stress this enough I think their communication has been very much misunderstood in, in, in the UK I think people are not used to clubs being being open and being transparent to a certain degree and coming out and saying what it is they want they feel there's always some an angle behind it or a double <laughs> yeah. bluff going on but Dortmund actually mean what they say in this in this respect. They, they do not want to sell him anymore. And um, I think that's going to be uh, reflected in what happens in the next few weeks. It's hard to read, though, because sometimes the truth is the best form of weaving, isn't it? Uh, but anyway, you spoke about Zork's uh, black book and uh, lots of succession plans. Jude Bellingham, 17, time from Birmingham City. Uh, do you know whether the plan is to use Jude straight away or will he be, be, be eased into the team, do you think, at his age? The plan is very much to ease him in. He will train with the first team. I think he'll be in contention for starts. Maybe he will play in cup competitions. But in the wider scheme of things, the idea for him is to be in contention to be a starter in the second half of the season. Um, they have history for this, or they have a blueprint for this. Both Sancho himself, but also Pulisic and Gio Reyna, they all followed a similar trajectory. They needed about six, eight months with the team to become fully ready and uh, and switched on enough to, to play at this level. And then in the second half of the season, they started to be to get game time. And I think that's that's exactly the, the idea for, for Bellingham as well. What's most interesting about this to me is um, I think we can, we can see now that there is a clear pathway, both from the UK and from, from the States particularly as well, for young players to join German teams and, and you know Dortmund is is one of a number that, are, that have been recruiting in, in those two places so beyond that that pathway particularly the one you know set by by uh, Jaden Sancho I wondered what was it about Dortmund that uh, Jude Bellingham and, and his family were sold on like what what was the what was the selling point to the to, to this young man and to his family to you know to convince them to to up sticks and move to a to a different country well I think it's a combination of things there's there's a proven track record when it comes to fostering young talent and helping them really break through into professional football at a level where they instantly become noticeable and and uh, play at a very high level in the Champions League, in the Bundesliga. There is, I think, the financial incentive. Dortmund do pay good money for youngsters, maybe a bit more than others, because they understand that... Uh, these guys have offers and I think they are quite happy to front load a bit of the investment, if you, if you uh, will, because they mm. know that they, these guys will appreciate as assets and they can make the money back quite easily. Um, they can, I don't want to say overpay, but they can probably go a little bit further than, than clubs who want to sign these guys, not so much with a view of developing them, but, but simply because they feel now this is, you know, this is a player that they want to maybe hold on to forever. So right. Dortmund's production approach, uh, process development helps them to to take a slightly different view of what it means to to compensate a player adequately. And then thirdly, I think there is an emotional pull. Um, I, d I do think it makes a difference if you can, like Dortmund, say, look, here's 80,000 people. Here's the yellow wall. Here's what it means to play for Dortmund Football Crazy City. Or yeah. you can be, you can just be another guy at Bayern Munich, or you can be in in uh, kicking maybe in the League Cup uh, for Manchester United at the odd ball uh, because you're not quite ready yet for the first team. And I think that might be 
one of the less relevant factors, but it is something that Dortmund push quite hard to convince players that they're the right place. And of course, with every Sancho and every Haaland and every Pulisic and every Reina, that story becomes easier to tell. Yeah, totally. Okay, so we have some picks now for, for Dortmund. And before we come to the first one, which is uh, Ashraf Hakimi, uh, I just want to ask you, Rafa, did Dortmund pass on the opportunity to sign him permanently or was this just a, a financial issue? It was a financial issue. They would have loved to make that deal permanent. But um, first of all, Ramadan ordered him back and then it made a decision to sell, at which point 40 million euros, it was just a little bit too much for Dortmund. Um, they like to buy Ashraf Hakimi's before they're worth 40 million. Right. Um, and then sell them maybe for 60. So it, it wasn't in the business model, if you will, to, to buy him at this point. Oh, okay. Alex, I'm coming to you now then uh, to suggest uh, a replacement for Ashraf Hakimi. Presumably that's not possible. <laughs> he's not replaceable. Uh, I mean, the thing with Hakimi is that he is he's a world-class right back. He also offers positional versatility. He can play left back. He can play as a right winger. Uh, arguably the only player who's got that degree of, of ability in, in both positions on, on the flanks is Rafael Guerrero, who's already uh, in Borussia Dortmund's squad as a left-sided player. Um, Dortmund have moved um, to to secure the right flank for the short term. They've got Thomas Munier who's come in. Lucas Piszczek has uh, signed a one-year extension. Mathieu More is there in the squad as well. And also Felix Paslak, who was on loan uh, at Norwich, didn't get a game behind Max Ahrens really, but but is is a, a relatively promising talent, I think. So I think they'll probably let it run for this year. Um, there aren't really many players that can step into that position. And, and I think Dortmund are probably right to sort of take a, a solid and professional option and then maybe look to upgrade next season. Uh, William, who's the Wolfsburg right back, is is very capable, very good attacking right back. Uh, with Bundesliga experience, so he's possibly one to look at in the future. But you're asking for for a team to find you know a genuinely world class player in that position, and and that will take time, and Dortmund won't rush that process. Well, I want what I want. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to move us on. We did have another pick for Dortmund, but it wasn't important, and we're running out of time. Uh, Seb, will you take me to Leipzig, please? Hey Alex, did you know that this podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming? I'll be honest, no. Not not until you just hit me with that. Seb, did you know that Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family aduels? Precision is important in that area. It very much honest. is. It yes. very much is. And I'm I'm excited today, gang, because Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job over here. So you could be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. And that's life-changing in a good way, gang. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. I'm a multitasker, so I like to do everything at once. Uh, and we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping right now by using the code EPL20, that's EPL20, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving, gang. I shall take you to Leipzig. Um, Rafa, first things first, um, have Leipzig appointed a successor to Paul Mitchell yet? No, not to my knowledge. No. 
obviously the sort of the headline news from this summer is the departure of Timo Werner. Uh, Timo Werner, who's gone to Chelsea. Um, he Chung Hwan has arrived from RB Salzburg after presumably it was a tough negotiation there. Um, is there a plan to kind of to replace him um, with a more orthodox player? Because that's 28 goals from 33 starts, which need replacing. So is there kind of, um, is there another kind of more um, traditional number nine coming in? Well, they would love to keep uh, Patrick Schick, who is probably the closest that you get to to traditional number nine, but negotiations are difficult with the AC Milan. They want They want a lot of money. Leipzig, despite selling Werner, don't have a lot of money because they need to keep the whole team together. They've been doing sort of inward investing a lot, trying to renew contracts, trying to make sure that the likes of Diop Mekan, for example, will stay. And that has restricted their ability to spend in the transfer market. Uh, they're also still negotiating with Manchester City about uh, Angelino. So I think they won't be able to, to do a lot necessarily. Uh, there is talk of um, Alexander Zorlod coming in as well, but his situation is quite complicated. Uh, he's at Trabzonspor, but uh, the rights still lie with Crystal Palace. It seems to be a very uh, difficult, difficult move at the moment, but he could possibly come over um, and be yet another attacking player. Not necessarily a big, hulky centre-forward, but then again, Leipzig don't, don't play like that anyway. And they have, of course, in uh, Yusuf Polson, someone who does hold the ball up really well um, and can play that way. So there is still enough depth in the squad to suggest that they'll be very competitive again next season. You mentioned the club's financial situation. Are you expecting any further departures? Uh, you talked about Uber Meccano, but also rumours linking uh, Marcel Sabitzer with a with move away. I'm sure Conrad Lyme would be um, highly coveted across Europe. Are they going to be able to keep hold of these players? It will be difficult, but I think there is there is um, the hope, I think from Leipzig's point of view, that the market will be fairly quiet and that they will be able to keep to keep these kind of players because the valuation will be very high and will be off-putting um, many people. That doesn't mean it's, it's impossible, but I think, you know, if you talk about Zabitzer and his profile, I think he would ordinarily be a £40 million player. He will might only be a £20 million player as far as buying clubs are concerned. And at that point, Leipzig will just say no. And uh, with Lima, I think being even younger, uh, I just don't see how how Leipzig will, will let him go uh, this summer. There's always, I think, the possibility and, and part of the business model, again, that these, these players move on eventually. But what Leipzig are trying to do is to delay this departure and make sure that they can hold on to their players for just that little bit longer and, and grow a team um, and then maybe only sell one or two players rather than you know being being forced to make make more wholesale changes because of the attention uh, in a strange way i think they're they're quite happy that the market is as it is this year because otherwise after a semi-final appearance uh, by this team and all the attention that some of these players have garnered I think there'll be a lot more pull and 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 drag as far as you know making sure that these guys are are not leaving. Um, so I think it'll be a relatively quiet market for them. So Alex, one player we know isn't coming back is Angelino. I think I'm right in saying that Leipzig rejected the option to sign him permanently from Manchester City. Um, Marcel Halstenberg is is still there covering the left back left wing back position. Do we have a couple of picks as a kind of a, a younger profile player to cover him to compete for his role? Yeah, I, th- I think it's tricky because Angelino's really impressed um, 
at Leipzig, he's bought into the, the, the tactical versatility there. And you can see echoes probably of, of some of the stuff that he's observed with um, what Pep Guardiola gets uh, his fullbacks to do. So there's quite a lot of inversion bulking out in the midfield line. Um, Miro Muheim, who's at San Gallen, is a player who I, I quite like. San Gallen are, are an interesting team in Switzerland who develop good young players. And, and Muheim has that same intelligence of movement and positioning. Um, so he's able to, to, to cut inside and assist with the midfield, cut inside further up the pitch and provide an attacking option almost around the edge of the box or go round on the overlap. Uh, if they're looking for a Bundesliga-style replacement, that probably isn't one. But Aaron Martin, who's at Mainz, uh, seems like a, a smart player, obviously acquainted with the Bundesliga, is is an adept presser, can get forward. Um, his attacking output has kind of dropped off slightly, I think. Um, but, you know, with, with the right coaching, and I, I think it's difficult because Leipzig have, have oscillated between, you know, three at the back quite often, but also... You know, there is still the option to use the more Leipzig or Red Bull template of four at the back, and Nagelsmann does like to to change back and forth. So you do need a player who's intelligent and versatile in that position, and and Muheim is is an interesting shout for that, I think. Okay, I'm moving us to Bayer Leverkusen now, uh, because Kai Havertz's sale is a pending, we assume, but on the presumption that he is leaving... Um, Rafa, I want to ask you how Leverkusen will replace him because he's the top scorer uh, from the 10 or 9.5 position in a 4-2-3-1. Is there a likely strategy that will be employed here in, in attempting to replace him? I don't think it's going to be a straight replacement. I mean, Leverkusen have been buying lots of attacking players and I think some of the transfer market dealings have reflected already the strong possibility that Harvards will leave the summer. Right. Um, if you will, they they might have you know brought some investment forward even, and of course they're bringing through Florian Wirtz, who at seventeen is exactly at the same stage as as Harvard's was when he started playing, and he's already I think shown that he's also um, a superb talent. He won't be able to replace Harvard's goal and his influence straight away, but he is he's a player I think that they have high hopes for. The same goes for Paulinho, who's been uh, in and out of the team, but has has huge talent. Um, so there is, you know, there is still quality around. Ideally, in an ideal world, they would sell Leon Bailey rather than Kai Havertz and yeah. keep Havertz for another year. But I think the way this story is going, it's, it's increasingly likely that he will leave uh, to Chelsea this summer. And they will probably feel that collectively they have enough to make up for that. Is Leon Bailey likely to leave at some point as well, although not presumably not this summer? I think he's likely to leave at some point. The question is just how much of a market there is for him. Um, he's still yeah. only 23. He can still improve. But he's been a little bit inconsistent to warrant the kind of investment that I think you would you would have to, to make to both get him from Leverkusen but also pay the kind of wages that he's looking for. So I think he's sort of in between at the moment. Um, getting too good to be just another player i think you know there's something special there but he's not quite special enough for someone to come out and spend that kind of money at least not this summer 
Right. Okay. Uh, Alex, uh, let's talk about an uh, Everts replacement. As Rafa says, it's it's pretty much impossible to do that in a in a one f- one for one. Uh, but thinking more broadly, how do you think it is sensible to approach trying to replace a star player like that? Particularly if you're receiving a lot of money, is the is a is a sensible idea to try and spread some of that investment? I mean, my, the the main example I always remember of that happening was when Tottenham sold Gareth Bale and then bought seven players, six of whom didn't work out. Uh, but I'm sure there are better examples. I think it depends on on what the squad needs at that point in time and the, and the degree proportionally that that player contributes. Uh, I think with Florian Wirtz and also um, Ezekiel Palacios, who's not really kind of ignited at, at Leverkusen yet, but it has the potential to play as quite an attacking 10, um, they, they do have cover in that sort of position. Uh, I mean, Schalke, who have financial difficulties... Um, Amin Harrit, who's there, is an interesting attacking midfielder who can play slightly deeper and I think probably could fit into to the Leverkusen style. But sometimes, and potentially, again, this is the sort of situation that we're talking about in a post-COVID environment where finances are down and everything, you, you actually you take that money and you put it in the bank because it's not necessarily the most sensible thing to do to go and splash the cash in, in a market where you know there's volatility some prices will be depreciated but as selling clubs are also desperate for revenue they might be inflating inflating their prices or or holding on to players that are under contract because they know they don't need to sell them um it's it's very very difficult to know so i think i think if leverkusen want to strengthen they probably should be looking more at their sort of um central midfield area um and and looking to potentially replace some of the guys in there people like Lars Bender and Aaron Geese who are getting a little bit older but it it's very difficult to know what they're going to do with that sort of money and and Havertz is an irreplaceable player hey Seb did you know that Harry's sponsors the Tifo football podcast I do now And Alex, did you know that as a listener of ours, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. I have a beard, though. Yeah. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, simply by going to harrys.com forward slash TIFO right now. That's harrys.com forward slash TIFO. In fact, I want to come to Rafa about that because, um, I, well, I'll put it this way, Leverkusen were my team to play as on FIFA in 2019 before Julian Brandt <laughs> left because, come on, my, well, I'm, a, I'm a young man and it's a fun game, uh, because I loved uh, the dynamic between Kai Everts and Julian Brandt. Also, Charles Aranguis I loved and Bellarabi on the way. Lovely team, basically. They're a lovely team. However, as Alex mentioned, Aranguis is 31, Bellarabi is 30, Sven Lars Bender 31, Julian Baumgartlinger is 32. It's an ageing team. What do you think, Rafa, from a broad perspective, are the club, uh, how are they approaching thinking about transitioning to, to, to a younger team? How, do, how does a club, when they get to that stage, uh, approach that? I think they would take great offence uh, at you describing them as an ageing side. You know, there's the likes of Wirtz, who we already mentioned, but there's also Nadim Amiri and Demibai, who they just bought. They're still in their early 20s or mid-20s. Sure. Uh, you have Musa Diaby, who I think is going to be a key player next season. He's only 21. Um, I don't think necessarily that the age composition is an issue. If anything, Leverkusen, I think, are careful or are wary of becoming yet another pit stop club where they buy players with 
huge talent and huge potential going forward, but are just seen as as momentarily an employee. And therefore the identification with the club suffers, the, the sort of commitment suffers, and they actually want to keep players a bit longer. They like the fact that they have the Bender brothers there in the early 30s kind of holding things together. And they'd love for somebody like Tapsobo who's coming at 21 to stay until he's 25, 26. I think it's unlikely because his quality is such that I think in a couple of years' time, the deal for him to move on is inevitable. But if you look at Jonathan Tarr, for example, he's still only 24. Um, so I don't think that that age is something that they worry about. What's the bigger issue is the psychological approach where Leverkusen have this reputation that they don't quite do it when it really matters, that they bottle it, they don't win. And I think that through the transfer policy, if possible, is, is a bigger concern for them rather than having a squad that might be too old. Okay. Uh, Seb, can you take me to Hertha Berlin, please? I can, because I kind of adopted Hertha Berlin after the restart. Everyone was uh, everyone was so fond of Union, I just kind of felt sorry for them. Um, <laughs> so I started watching them instead. Um, Rafa, they obviously had a really aggressive January. Um, Lars Windhorst, I think, now owns 49.9% of, of the club, or his holding company does. Um, and they spent nearly £100 million on Christoph Piontek, Dodi Lukabakio from... Um, Lukabakio, even, sorry, from, from Watford. Matthias Kuhner, Santi Gaskell-Saibar, and Lucas Toussaint, who I think spent the rest of the season on loan at Lyon and is now going to join permanently. Are we expecting them to kind of to have a, a statement off-season? Are they going to try and make another lunge in the market to sort of um, establish their place as a kind of a growing entity within German football? Yeah, I don't know about statement as such, but I think they're trying to strengthen. Um, I think they came very close to buying Western, uh, buying Western McKenney from Schalke. Um, I think they'd be in the market for that kind of player. Uh, you know, 25, 30 million euros, which I think in Bundesliga standards is is big this summer. Not many clubs will be able to, to do that kind of deal. So there is money available, but not necessarily for a you know superstar or big name. I think they're being a little bit more strategic and looking at the weaknesses in the squad. I think with uh, Bruno Labbadia in charge and with the progress that they've made, um, fourth spot will be a realistic target. But of course, you look at uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, you look at Leverkusen, and you think that these squads are still actually quite quite a bit superior to Hertha. So it's going to be difficult for them to to break into that top four, maybe even to break into the top six. The bad is, is such an interesting guy. I mean, I was talking to um, Jonathan Harding, who I know you know, and we were talking about sort of his, his status within German football. He was kind of drawing a, a faint parallel with some of the, the kind of the... The managers that you find on the um, on the Premier League carousel, does he have a kind of um, does he have a, a, a binary twin in English football that we could compare him to, an Allardyce or a, a Mark Hughes type? Because he's kind of inherited this <laughs> this amazing project with loads of money behind it, and he seems to be someone that's kind of just bounced around jobs in the Bundesliga. Yeah, I think his his good looks and, and great hair would probably he does make him a hair. bit of a German Pardew, perhaps. But um, <laughs> I um... so are we saying Alan Pardew is good looking? We're moving in that direction. Um, yeah, I think for a for a f- football manager, he's he's quite dapper. Yeah, I'd say he's so. handsome on the outside. Um, let's let's uh, put it that way. I I couldn't possibly comment, but um, <laughs> the the thing with Labadia that he's been a little bit unlucky to find himself on that on that carousel. If you look at the the work he did at Wolfsburg, for example, most clubs would have just kept him, but they had another idea. They wanted somebody younger, more dynamic, etc. I think with Hertha, he's now finally at a place where they seem to trust him. And I think he can at last build build something. And I think also at 54, he will have learned some of the lessons 
that perhaps stopped himself from doing better. I always think back to his um, spell at Leverkusen where he had such a fantastic first half of the season. They were challenging for the title. And then I think he just pushed things too far. There was this um, story that I was told that um, in the training camp in January, the team all came to him before the last day and said, look, coach, we've been working so hard. We've been doing all these drills. Um, the team has uh, has a wish. Um, would you mind if we just play a bit of football tomorrow as the final day and then you know we can all go home be happy and he said no to them and then the captain came and then the whole um, players council came and he was totally intransigent and he felt that something broke at that moment between the team and and the manager that there was here was someone just pushing it a little bit too far and being not in tune with the, the needs and the, the feelings of a team but I think 10 years later he perhaps has developed more of a more of a sense of what is necessary and what can be modified and become just a little bit more easygoing. And I think the football has been has been very good at how they've been playing. So uh, there's a real chance there of, of building something over the next two, three years if they keep patience with him. Let me just take a quick step back because I've read the account of Jürgen Klinsmann's Facebook resignation a couple of times and all the commentary around it. And I still don't quite understand what went wrong there. Um, which put Labadia in position to, to what go went right? Why, why, well, no, I mean, I, I just, I don't understand sort of, um, obviously Clint, one of Klinsmann's issues, his irritations was that he was, he was presented a different project to the reality. And yet after he leaves, in comes this huge amount of investment in the transfer market. What, what, what was the basis for him leaving and walking away? Was this just a, a classic Klinsmann flounce? No, the investment was already there when he was there. The investment came in January and he of course left in... February, I think. So Valentine's Day that. he left? Something like that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the investment was already there. The issue was power. He wanted to be this Alex Ferguson character who would be in complete control of everything, buying and selling the players, uh, appointing the team coaches, appointing maybe even the youth coaches, calling the shots. And at Berlin, um, they have the classic Bundesliga setup where it doesn't work like that. There's a sporting director and Michael Preetz. There's a president who's in charge of the sporting director. And they just weren't prepared to give Klinsmann the keys, the keys of the whole operation or the keys of the house. And that was always the point where the fault line was. Um, they could never agree because Klinsmann thought he might be taking over the whole thing. And the club thought, no, you're the head coach and that's it. And it was inevitable that the whole thing would blow up. Of course, they didn't realize that he was just going to leave from one day to the next. And also um, the fact that his uh, very private and very um, revealing in more, may, more ways than one uh, diaries would become uh, public um, afterwards where you could see that Klinsmann was really unhappy with some of the things that he, he felt were not professional enough or the the club wasn't pushing itself enough. And I think there is some there is some truth in it. I think Hertha, before Vintorst and, and even maybe now, there are some people there who are quite comfortable just being top of the table, don't rock the boat too much, this is all fine, you know, we're having a good time here. Um, and I think he is an incredibly ambitious um, guy and I think he just cannot cannot deal with, with people like that. And it was always going to be a big clash of, of ideas, of personalities. And ultimately, I think... Hertha um, are better off that they found somebody who's much more in tune with how the club is run and 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 can be a team player, and that is Bruno Labbadia. 
isn't his sort of wasn't his objective a little bit of an unrealistic one? Are there any German clubs that allow a head coach that much authority and that much agency within their structure? No, there isn't. And that's why he kept referencing the English model, which in itself, I think, is a very romanticized and perhaps nostalgic version of how Premier League clubs work in 2020. There is a separation of powers for very good reasons. No one is prepared to give one man alone the power. I think the closest you had was was Rangnick at Leipzig, but even he had you know people around him and he wouldn't do everything himself. But I think it was completely unrealistic that Klinsmann with this very limited track record as a first team club coach you know we're talking of a couple of years not even and we're talking about 10 months at Bayern which weren't a success that he was ever going to be given that kind of power I think it's possible to earn that power if you do it consistently over three or four years that you kind of bend the club to your own will but it was absolutely unrealistic to expect the club just to say you know what here Jürgen you can now decide who we're buying and selling um, especially with some of the suggestion he allegedly made, which didn't go down that well with, with the club. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein, and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday, and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel, and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. Alex, we reckon tentatively that uh, we're not quite sure whether Marco Grujic is going to return from Liverpool. Um, there's suggestions that his his move will be made permanent. Um, but may I trouble you for a replacement midfielder? I'm going to be really awkward and say that I don't think that that's actually where they need to spend their money. Um, partly because I think Grujic, I mean, if they can get that done, that would be fantastic. Um, the areas that, that it seems to me that they do need work is is up front and also in goal so they they didn't really have any I mean yes Cunha's coming through um they they have potentially people who can play up front but the guy who led the line um Ibisevic, is 34 years old I think he's also been so, released I think uh very recently well that doesn't help either no. um so somebody coming in and and filling that gap and i just wonder cheekily whether a, a loan move for someone like luka jovic might be um, um an idea there given that real are desperate to shift some wages um Herter might not necessarily want to commit to a full transfer but they get somebody with a proven goal scoring track record uh in the bundesliga I think also in goal, if you look at um, if you look at how their goalkeepers performed last season, um, Schmarsch, the twenty-year-old, was arguably the best in terms of his his post-shot xG for or against. Um, but that is an area of weakness. Um, playing behind what is a relatively decent defence, there's a guy called Ivo Gerbic um, who plays in Croatia um, for Lokomotiva, and he's very tall, very agile. Um, excellent at crosses, really kind of dominant young goalkeeper um, who I think would be an immediate upgrade on, on anybody that they've got there. But I think I think they've got enough enough depth in other positions that, that they should be looking at both ends of the pitch specifically. Rafa, you're a Bundesliga fan. If you listen to this podcast, would you shout at us at the end for missing a very important storyline or not talking about a particular club? 
I would never shout at you. <laughs> would you would you feel disappointed and then not say anything? What I'm asking is, is there anything before we finish that you feel like on a Bundesliga Sensible Transfers podcast, maybe we should acknowledge that we haven't? Well, I don't know about sensible, but I think it is worth mentioning that Schalke are having a bit of a fire sale at the moment. Um, a lot of these players are for sale. They're trying to offload Western McKenney, which is public knowledge. I think there are one or two more players who... If they can find takers, they'd, they'd love to go. The only sensible way of replacing them is through their own youth system because they really cannot go out and and buy players. Maybe they will loan players. Uh, that has been uh, something that they've done. But I just don't see um, too much um, incoming. I was going to say, sorry to interrupt. I just wondered, this is this is sort of new to me. Seb mentioned this to me the other day. Can you explain what, what the issue is at, at Schalke? Well, Schalke have huge, um, have huge debts and they were already quite pushed before COVID-19. The fact that they missed out on, on European football has exacerbated the problem. And of course, now with no fans, there's another uh, revenue stream that's gone, that's dried up for them. And the only way to, to balance the books will be to sell, sell players. And I think McKenney is the obvious one, uh, perhaps the most saleable one with his American ties and uh, the merchandising and marketing potential that comes with that. But you look at somebody like uh, Kabak, who had huge offers before he moved to Schalke. I think there's a big market for him uh, in the Bundesliga and beyond. And they might be forced to cash in on him as well, which is a shame because at, uh, at 20, I think he had all the hallmarks to be one of their main players over the next uh, three or four years ago or so. So I think we'll see more departures from Schalke and more efforts to organically um, recruit from within and, and make sure that they have some kind of sense, some kind of side that will, will be able to compete for European places. But I think it's going to be really tough for them again this year. How, how serious is the problem? How, how do you think it will be reflected in their league position next season? The problem is quite serious. I mean, we're not talking about going out of business serious, but um, they just simply cannot spend any money because there is not enough money coming in. yeah. And I think we will see more quality leave and it's going to be really hard, I think, for David Wagner to to find enough in the existing squad with those who will be left and those perhaps who are coming through to be ready. I mean, we have seen um, Schalke players, especially some of the younger ones, uh, do pretty well since the restart. But that is in relative terms. I think it's going to be all but impossible to get anywhere near the top six which then poses the danger of Schalke getting stuck in this, this no, no man's land, if you will. Uh, and that's the best case, because the worst case, they'll be getting dragged into a relegation fight. And if they were to go down, then I think we're, we're looking at a serious financial problem as well. OK, well, listen, thanks so much for coming today, Rafa. We always really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And uh, thank you to you, Seb. Thank you very much, Joe. And of course to Alex. Thanks, Joe. And we'll be back in two days with another thing which is similar to this, uh, but not exactly the same. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.